One of my favorite Julia Roberts movies is Runaway Bride. There's this one scene where she's walking towards Richard Gere, and I'm convinced this is it. She's finally going to marry the man she loves, only for her to run away again right before saying I do. If you've seen the movie, you know it wasn't the first time she had done it. She had left multiple men standing at the altar on their wedding day. And when I was younger, I remember feeling bad for the men that she ditched. But now, I think they were lucky she did. What's a bigger red flag than the woman you love bowing out in the middle of your wedding ceremony? These men, they went on to find their matches. And maybe that's the real lesson of it all. It's better to get left at the altar than to marry a lie. When I look at pictures of Cody Johnson on his wedding day, happy and grinning ear to ear, I wish he could have benefited from that same kind of brutal honesty. His heart was filled with joy and love as he looked at the woman he wanted to spend the rest of his life with walking towards him. But hers, it was filled with doubt. Doubt that if she had acted on, would have changed the course of both of their lives. And yes, it would have meant heartbreak for him, but I think that if he had been given the choice, he would have chosen heartbreak over death. Welcome to the podcast that reminds you, it isn't the boogeyman you should be worried about. It's the stranger you know. There are people you come across in life that you can't help but like instantly. And it's hard to put your finger on it, what it is exactly that you like so much about them. But it's like interacting with them, it just feels effortless. Meeting Cody felt a lot like that for most people. He was charismatic and easy to talk to. As an only child, growing up with a single mother, what he lacked in siblings he made up foreign friendships, and his friends, they were really important to him. He would often go above and beyond for them, because to him, they were more like his brothers. But it wasn't just his close friends that he extended himself for. Helping others was something that he just liked to do. There was this one time when a co-worker of his lost the keys to his car in a softball field, and everyone there tried to help him find them, but... As the sun went down, pretty much everyone had quit, but not Cody. He kept up the search, using his cell phone as a light instead. He just sounds like the kind of person who made your problem his problem too. Beside his friends and family, Cody loved fast cars. He had a passion for fixing them up and racing them, and there were plenty of winding roads for Cody to use as his racetrack, that were near and around Kalispell, Montana, where he lived. 
Kalispell is a mountain town located in the Flathead Valley of Northwest Montana. It's a great place for tourists to visit, especially in the summer months because of how close it is to Glacier National Park. Glacier National Park is in the Rocky Mountains and it's an ideal park for hikers and wilderness lovers who want to explore its numerous hiking trails while taking in stunning mountain views. For people looking to enjoy the park, Kalispell is an ideal town to stay in, but for Cody, it's his home. And where he looked forward to buying a house, getting married, and starting a family of his own. At 24 years old, he wanted nothing more than that next chapter of his life to begin. Which is why when he met Jordan Graham in 2011, he could not contain his excitement because for the first time ever, he could see that future with her. It's hard to say what first attracted Cody to Jordan because they weren't similar in personality at all. Cody was outgoing and charming, and Jordan, she was more reserved and timid. Still, he was into her right away, and they fell into a serious relationship quickly. And you probably know a couple like this, or maybe you're part of one yourself, where one half of the couple is a social butterfly, and the other likes to take a more backseat approach in a social setting. This is kind of how I would describe me and my husband, with me being the more talkative one and him much more reserved. Yet somehow, we just work. We have a way of balancing each other out. And I think this is why Cody didn't mind that Jordan was different than him. The only thing he cared about was that she made him happy. And he was happy. So much so that he tells his mother a week after meeting her that he's going to marry her. To Cody, Jordan checked a lot of boxes. He had always told his friends that he wanted to settle down with a church-oriented girl, and if that's what he was looking for, Jordan definitely fit the bill. She was very religious, and soon enough, Cody and Jordan are regularly attending church services together at First Baptist Church. As they got to know each other better, it became obvious to everyone around the couple how in love Cody was with Jordan. But some of Cody's friends weren't convinced that Jordan was as invested in their romance as Cody was. When they would all be out together, Jordan always seemed kind of distant with Cody. And they rarely, if ever, expressed affection like you would expect from a typical couple in love like holding hands and kissing. And it could be that some of this was because of Jordan's strict religious beliefs. She was against premarital sex for one thing, so maybe things like physical touching and kissing were off limits too. But it's obvious enough that some friends tell Cody that maybe he's rushing things with Jordan, and they aren't as great of a fit as he thinks they are. But clearly Cody disagreed, because he proposed to Jordan less than two years after they start dating, and she said yes. The couple got to preparing for their big day right away. Jordan flies out to California to meet with a company called Our Story, Our Song, which is a company that creates original songs for special events like weddings, birthdays, and anniversaries. Jordan wanted to create a song that would perfectly capture how she felt about her soon-to-be husband, and Cody... He was on cloud nine during this time. 
That seemed to be the case with Jordan, too. To everyone around her, she seemed happy. Until she asks her best friend and matron of honor Kimberly whether she was making the right choice marrying Cody. It was probably a question that surprised Kimberly because they were literally in the middle of planning her wedding. So she tells her the best advice she could think of. She tells her, you should talk to Cody about how you feel if you're having any doubts. But instead, on a beautiful sunny day in June 2013, Jordan walks down the aisle towards a smiling and waiting Cody and vows to love him till death they part. At the reception, Jordan and Cody dance along to the song Jordan commissioned special for their wedding day. Their wedding song, which included lyrics like, you helped me to climb higher for a better view, you're my safe place to fall, and you never let me go, at the time sounded like a sweet ballad from a wife to her husband. But who could have known then how they almost seemed to predict the tragedy to come? After returning from their single night honeymoon, the couple settled into their lives together as newlyweds, but not much had really changed. Cody went back to his job at Nomad Global Communication Solutions and Jordan to her regular babysitting jobs. On July 7th, eight days after their wedding, Cody and Jordan meet with a group of other church members after the evening service at First Baptist at Dairy Queen. They stay for a bit before heading out a little bit after 8 p.m. That same night, Jordan calls her younger brother, Michael, around 11.15 p.m., asking him to come over. It's an odd request given the time of night, but she tells him that she and Cody had argued, and he had left after receiving a text from a friend, and she just didn't want to be alone. She says she isn't sure where he had gone, but that he had been picked up by a dark vehicle with out-of-state plates. So Michael comes over to keep her company, And meanwhile, Jordan is also texting Kimberly about her fallout with Cody. But as the hours pass, Kimberly suggests that Jordan maybe go looking for him. It's weird that he hadn't come back yet. But Jordan doesn't seem to want to do that. She tells Kimberly that he'll likely show for work in the morning. But he doesn't. Which is immediately concerning to Cameron, Cody's supervisor. Cameron is actually also Cody's really good friend, and he had been a groomsman in Cody's wedding, so he knows him well. He knows that Cody wouldn't just not show up for work without so much as a text or a phone call, so he sends a message to Cody checking in, but he doesn't get a reply. When he tries calling him instead, Cody's phone goes straight to voicemail. As the day goes on with still no sign of Cody, Cameron starts calling around to whoever he can think of, trying to track him down, but he gets the same response. No one had seen or heard from Cody that day. When he finally gets some sort of answer about where Cody could possibly be, it's from Jordan around 4.30 p.m. Jordan sends him a text asking whether Cody had come into work that day, and when Cameron tells her he hadn't, she tells him about the fight they had had the night before and how Cody had left with who she refers to as his car buddies, in a car with Washington plates. Cameron gets a bad vibe about her story right away. 
To put this in context, Cameron had been one of the friends who had warned Cody against marrying Jordan. It wasn't that he disliked her for any particular reason. It had been more like a feeling that the two just weren't right for each other. So that day, when Jordan tells him what happened the night before, her story, it just doesn't sit right with him. That same day, Cody is also officially reported missing, which then sends everyone who knew him into a panic. Jordan's friends rallied around her to help try to find him, but they don't even know where to start. So they drive around town in no particular direction, just hoping to spot any signs of him. During these rides, they don't see anything that catches their attention. Well, except Jordan's demeanor. They expect her to be much more upset over Cody being missing, but she's distracted by her phone for the most part and doesn't seem especially interested in the search effort. When police call Jordan on July 9th to come in for an interview, she meets with detectives for the first time to tell them more about the last time she saw Cody. She tells police that after leaving the Dairy Queen on the night of the 7th, Cody had received a phone call on the ride home that she could tell upset him. When they arrived home, she noticed that her phone was about to lose all charge, so she left the house to get her phone charger, which she had forgotten at another home where she had been babysitting that afternoon. While she was out, she tells detectives she got a text from Cody telling her that he was going to head out on a drive with a friend from out of town. When she arrived home, she saw a dark car leaving her driveway and assumed Cody was in it. But when they asked her to show them Cody's message, the one about him leaving with the friend, she tells them it's a habit of hers to delete her text, so she didn't have it. The problem is, this version of what happened that night was different than what she had told other people, people who the police had already spoken to. So they're sure that Jordan isn't telling them everything, but they're in the dark about what exactly it is she isn't saying. And there's a lot she isn't saying. But for Jordan to have been honest with them, she needed to have started with the day she and Cody got married. You see, that doubt that first surfaced while she was planning her wedding had exploded into a frenzy of regret almost as soon as she had said, I do. The very next day after their wedding, she had texted Kimberly about the remorse she was feeling. She wrote her, Totally just had a meltdown. I'm completely second-guessing everything. I don't know if all of this was the right thing to do. So much happened last night. I just don't know. You can tell that Kimberly, again, wanted to reassure her that everything would be fine, but Jordan's texts to her only get more intense with each day that passes. On July 1st, she again writes her, I cannot freaking pull myself together. I haven't stopped crying since I was married. I wish someone would have stood up and asked me what I wanted, but I can't go back and change anything. I should be happy and I'm just not. I don't feel like myself. And while Kimberly encouraged her once more to share her feelings with Cody, Jordan is reluctant to say anything to him. She's also especially fearful to be intimate with her new husband, 
and she tells Kimberly about the excuses she had been using to avoid it completely. So it's safe to say that Jordan was not in newlywed bliss. But Cody, by all accounts, he's clueless that Jordan was feeling this much regret. To him, everything was fine. And yeah, maybe his wife was reluctant to consummate their marriage, but he wasn't going anywhere. So when Jordan tells him she has special plans for him on July 7th, Cody could have thought this was her way of saying she was finally ready to take their marriage to the next level. Whatever he thought it could be, he was really excited about it. Because when the couple attend morning service at church that day, he tells several people, including Jordan's stepfather Steve, about Jordan's surprise for him. But Jordan doesn't mention anything about a special surprise she had planned for Cody when she talks to police. And you would think this would come up, since it's the same day that he had disappeared. But then again, she also failed to tell them about her apparent plans to tell Cody that she was unhappy in their marriage on that same day. That was something police didn't learn about until they spoke with Kimberly, who not only shared with them all of the texts that Jordan had sent her in the days following her wedding, but also the message she had sent her the day Cody disappeared. In her messages to Kimberly that day, Jordan had told her that she was finally ready to share her feelings of remorse with Cody. When Kimberly replied that she would pray for her, Jordan had responded, But dead serious. If you don't hear from me, something happened. Detectives are still piecing all of this together. When Jordan shows up at the police station the day after her first interview, except this time she's with her mother. She shows them this mysterious email she had received from a man who only identified himself as Tony S. In the email, Tony claims that Cody had met up with him on the night of the 7th in Columbia Falls, and that while out joyriding with three other friends, Cody had gotten out of the car for a hike in the woods. He claims that Cody had fallen while walking in the woods, killing him instantly. After telling Jordan that he's positive Cody was dead when they left him, he adds that police should just call off the missing persons report. This email is suspicious, to say the least. And so was the way Jordan was acting when she was turning it over. She wasn't crying like you would expect she would be after finding out that her missing husband could be dead like this Tony guy claimed in the email. She was calm. She was matter-of-fact. And the police feel like something is off about the whole thing. When they questioned her on it, Jordan insisted she didn't know anyone named Tony. And she doesn't give them any additional information outside of what she had already told them about the night she had last seen Cody. On July 11th, the day after she turned that email over to police, Jordan and a group of her family and friends decide to go to Glacier National Park to search for Cody. Jordan, in particular, says she wants to look in the park for him because she says he would often visit the park to drive fast with his friends from out of town. The group canvassed the park, putting up missing person posters when Jordan pauses at an area called The Loop. There's this retaining wall there that overlooks a deep canyon. 
and there weren't any obvious signs that Cody had been there, so it's curious why Jordan felt the need to pay special attention to this spot, but she tells the group she has a feeling. Jordan scales the retaining wall to access a ledge below. It's as if she knows exactly where to look. A few minutes later, she thinks she sees something. The something she sees is Cody's body. He's lying face down in the ravine more than 200 feet below, and it's clear that he's gone. Police and park rangers are dispatched to help recover Cody's body, and it's a devastating end to a search that had consumed everyone who loved him. Now you would expect Jordan to be absolutely gutted with the discovery of Cody's body, especially given the fact that it was her that found him. But she seems more relieved than anything. She tells one friend that now that Cody had been found, a funeral could be held and the police could leave her alone. It's like her desire to be done with Cody and to be done with their marriage was hard for her to contain. Before his body had even been discovered, she had already discarded all remnants of their relationship. She had thrown out love letters, teddy bears, Valentine's Day cards, all in an effort to seemingly wipe the slate clean of his memory. But life is not like an etch-a-sketch that you can just shake up and magically start over. Cody had been a real person, loved deeply by many. And the discovery of his body just leads to cries for justice from everyone who knew him. And it also leads to feelings of suspicion from everyone around Jordan, who watch her closely and grow convinced that her lack of emotion over his death was a sign of her guilt. It also leads to the opening of a federal investigation into Cody's death, because he died in a national park, which is federal jurisdiction. And like the local police department, federal agents are not buying Jordan's story. By now, they knew of all the contradictions in her different versions of that night. The text messages between her and Kimberly leading up to the night Cody had disappeared. And they also know now who really sent that email. You know, what's interesting about email is that even if you invent a completely new email address to hide that an email is really from you, your computer's IP address is still connected to that fake email account. And this is something Jordan didn't realize when she created a fake email account for Tony on her parents' home computer. When the detectives subpoenaed Google's records relating to that account, they confirmed its origin and that it had been created on the 10th, the same day she brought it to the police station. But the real damning evidence against Jordan comes from the FBI's review of the security cameras at Glacier National Park on the night of the 7th. It shows Cody and Jordan walking into the west entrance of the park around 9.17 p.m. And what the video showed? Cell phone towers confirmed. There was no denying that she and Cody had been in the park together that night. So when Jordan is interviewed for the third time, this time by the FBI, she's confronted with that video evidence and she's backed into a corner she can't get out of. So, Jordan breaks. She admits that she and Cody had been arguing the night of Cody's death, 
and they had decided together to go to Glacier National Park for a walk. When they were near the loop, Cody had insisted on hiking the trail below, but Jordan had told him she didn't want to because she was afraid he would fall. She says Cody laughed off her concern and they were arguing about it when Cody grabbed Jordan by her arm and jacket. He lets go at some point and turned his back to her. And she tells the agent this is when she pushed Cody and he fell into the ravine below. Jordan is arrested and charged with both first-degree and second-degree murder. But she denies any premeditation had happened before the moment she shoved Cody, a shove that she continues to insist was only prompted by self-defense. But even by her own admission, Cody had already let go of her arm and was turned away from her when she placed both hands on his back and pushed him. And what Jordan doesn't explain as part of her story of what happened that night is the rag that was found so close to Cody's body, a rag that appeared to have been used as a blindfold. Remember that surprise she had told Cody she had for him? Well, prosecutors theorized that Jordan had used that surprise as a pretext to get Cody to the park that night where at some point he was blindfolded before she deliberately and intentionally pushed him off the ledge so she could rid herself of him and their marriage forever. At her trial, the odds did not look good for Jordan, with even her best friend Kimberly turning state's witness. So she decided to enter a plea of guilty to second-degree murder, and as a result, She was sentenced to 30 years in federal prison with no chance of parole, where she remains today. In the wake of his death, Cody's friends and family are filled with bitterness and resentment over the unnecessary loss of such a good man. Those who questioned Jordan's intentions with Cody at the start of their relationship can't help but wonder whether they could have done anything to stop him from marrying this woman, who would so quickly, after their marriage, take his life. But Cody was in love, and he didn't have the honesty from Jordan to end a romance he didn't know was completely one-sided. But Jordan knew, and she could have ended things. Which begs the same question Cody's mother raised after his death. In an interview with True Crime Daily, she asked, Why did she do it? If she didn't love him, why did she say yes to the proposal? That's still the question in my mind, to this day, is why. That's all for this episode. Thank you for listening, and if you like the podcast, please leave it a review and share it with your friends. Also, be sure to follow the podcast on Instagram at The Stranger You Know Podcast and on Twitter at TSYKPod. If you're listening on Anchor or Spotify, you can also drop me a voice message. I'd love to hear from you. Check out the link in the show notes. And if you have a story of betrayal by someone you thought you knew who turned out to be a stranger, email it to the stranger you know podcast at gmail.com and I'll share it on a future episode. Until then, Trust no one.
Thanks for listening. Leave a review. Bye.